Thank you, everybody. Our sermon text comes from Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 37 through uh, 22, verse 29. If you're visiting with us, we're going through the book of Acts, and we have this theme that God is on a mission. He's on a mission in our life, and he's been on a mission since the very beginning of the world. And this morning, we're going to see how our lives are part of that mission, no matter where we are in it. Acts chapter 21. If you don't have your copy of God's Word this morning, you'll see it's printed for you in the bulletin. Acts 21, starting in verse 37, going through verse 29 of chapter 22. What I'm about to read to you, it is God's Word. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting persecuted me and I answered who are you Lord and he said to me I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting now those who were with me they saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me and I said what shall I do Lord and the Lord said to me rise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do and since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, 
I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips... Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had been bound by him. Thus far in God's holy, perfect, complete word, let's pray and ask that he might bless the reading, the hearing, the teaching of it this morning. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you now needing your spirits, needing your help, to work through this passage, to work through this speech of Paul. And so, Lord, we ask for it. Help us. Come, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes, unclog ears, soften our hearts, that your truth might work deep in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you remember, uh, remember the Michael Caine, Alfred, Batman movies, those are the only Batman movies I really like, and they're the only good ones. But anyway, when young Bruce Wayne would get knocked down, do you remember what Alfred and his father would say to him? And imagine this in the smooth Michael Caine British voice. He says, why do we fall so we can learn to pick ourselves back up? And that's a callback they have throughout the movie, right? When Batman fails... What keeps him going? This saying, this idea, this quote, that past is part of how he keeps going. That past is part of his story and why he ends up succeeding in what he does. What we have this morning is a sermon. This is a sermon about a sermon. It's a sermon of Paul where he points back to his past. He has these callbacks again and again throughout the book of Acts where he says, this is how I came to be who I am today. This is who I am, how I am the man before you now. This is how I am beaten and bloodied. He recounts time and time again his past, why it has had such a profound impact on him in the present. So we can look at Paul today and ask, Paul, what, what can you possibly say to these people who want you dead? What can you show us this morning? 
in your sermon. He says, I can tell about God's mission through me by telling them whom I'm not, who I was, and who I am now, who I became. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at how Paul shows his story by telling people who he's not, who he, is, who he was, and who he became. Let's first by looking at Paul telling Claudius, that tribune, who he's not. And we see that in verses 37 through 39. If you're joining with us for the first time or you missed last week, here's a recap of what's going on. Paul has finally made it to Jerusalem. Finally. And he's gathered with some disciples up at the house of Philip the Evangelist to tell of how the gospel has spread among the Gentiles and they've come to believe in Jesus, and they celebrate, and they rejoice, and then Philip tells them, hey, things have been going really well here in Jerusalem, too, amongst the Jews. They, a lot of them have started believing in Jesus, too, except here's the problem. Word around town, especially in the Jewish community, is that, Paul, you've been telling people to forsake Moses. That you're trying to get rid of the, the Jewish traditions that we grew up with, the traditions of our fathers. And they don't take kindly to that kind of talk around these parts. And so Paul, to make peace, Philip says, to show the people that that's not really accurate, go to the temple and undergo a seven-day purification ritual before you join us in the temple for worship. And so do that and also pay for a handful of these men who are also going through their own purification rituals. So Paul agrees to this, and on the seventh day he is spotted by Jews from Asia Ephesus most likely, and they think Paul has infiltrated the temple and he's brought in Gentiles with him, desecrating the temple as a punishment worthy of death. And so they whip up the whole city into a frenzy, they take Paul, they beat him, and it's at the hands of a Roman army that is stationed just next door that Paul is saved, and he's brought into the barracks to be uh, investigated by Claudius. And now we come to verses 37 and 38 where Paul about to enter into the barracks, the military compound, he says to Claudius, may I have permission to say something to you and to these men? Notice the reaction, first of all. Paul must have said it in Greek. He was talking in Aramaic earlier, but now he says it in Greek. He says, do you know, and, and we see that the reaction is, do you know Greek? It's a giveaway. Now this is an understated part in the ESV. Imagine seeing as beat up ragged, bruised man who just looks pitiful. And he's been beaten by these Jews, and he's speaking in Aramaic to them, and Paul looks at him and says in this educated Greek language, may I ask you something? So this guard, he's taken aback. He's shocked. Especially because it reveals to him that Paul is not who he thought he was. Who did the guard think Paul was? Look at verse 38 then you are not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Now, can you imagine Paul at this moment? It would be like you and me getting arrested and taken away from a mob. And then when you ask the prison guards for a glass of water in English, they look at you and be like, what? You're not part of Al-Qaeda? I mean, it's, it's that kind of drastic. Because the guard has assumed this, that Paul is this infamous Egyptian leader of a terrorist group who got away. There was 4,000 men who went into the wilderness and they surrounded a Roman city. Josephus tells us about this band of 4,000 men 
go into the Mount of Olives to surround the area and then to assassinate and kill all the Romans inside. The Romans catch wind of this. They send their soldiers. There's a big battle that ensues, except that a leader, that leader, he escapes. No one knew what happened. And this tribune says, that, that must be who this is. Stirring up issues. So Paul, beaten and bloodied, asks in perfect Greek to speak to the crowd below, and it causes this man to realize that just as the crowd had misrepresented Paul as a defiler of the temple, as a defiler of the law of the Jewish people, he has misrepresented, he has mistaken Paul as well. And Paul says in verse 39, no, 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 no. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I'm not that. And so as we think about this in terms of application this morning, uh, we see the importance of clarity. Clarity. Clarity for Paul here is saying, this is not who I am. I'm a Jew from Tarsus. I am not an Egyptian terrorist. I don't know what you assumed, but this is who I am. I'm not this, I'm not that, I am this. Clarity. Clarity saves him from being executed as a terrorist. Clarity dispels any notion that he is there to take over the temple and then Jerusalem and the whole ancient Near East, including Rome. Clarity. And it makes us consider how we as Christians need clarity. How can we be clear about who we are? How can we have clarity about who we serve, especially in a more and more post-Christian world that doesn't really know much about the gospel? How can we have clarity? Well, a way to establish clarity as a believer is to simply live out the Scriptures. To live out what you believe to be true. It means a desire to confess and repent. Living out the Scriptures means we have a desire to confess and repent and value a relationship with God, to value a relationship with the covenant community of the church, to have a desire to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also to love your neighbor as yourself. If we are clear in our motivations as Christians, and this is why we're living the way we are, it's going to look a bit different than the world lives because, this comes as no surprise, a clear devotion to God draws distinctions. We need clarity in how we live. Now, that sounds really easy, doesn't it? As I say it, it makes sense. But clarity is very difficult, is it not? We often live in a very muddled way where we say, I like this part of living for the kingdom of God. I really can get on board with that, but not so much this. See, I like this part of what the world has to offer. So I'll take that, and I'll take that. But what does that do? It's the very opposite of clarity. And so the question as we we start this sermon within a sermon is, is simply this. Are we living lives of clarity? Are we living lives of clearly showing, clearly serving, and displaying who our King and Lord really is? Are we clear in where our hope lies? 
Let's look next at what Paul, at, at Paul as he dresses the Jews in the temple. And he starts telling them about who he was. So who I'm not, now who he was. He tells them about his former self before God literally blinded him and called him to Jesus. Notice how he addresses the crowd in verse 1. What does he call them? What does he call these men who have just beaten and bloodied him and called for him to be killed? He says, brothers and fathers. Still respecting them. Do you see what he's saying here? Brothers and fathers, I am not some foreigner who has come to desecrate this place. And he's saying, I respect you. I respect this place. He says, please, hear my, hear my defense. That word defense, you see in, in, in your Bible, it's this word that we get the word apologetics from. When we think of the word Christian apologetics, it's our defense of the faith. Here's our reasoning. Here's our rationale for why we believe what we believe. And so what is Paul's apologetic to this crowd? He points first to who he was. And he does so in perfect Hebrew. And he says, I am a Jew. I am born in Tarsus and Cilicia. It's the same thing he told Claudius just moments before. Tarsus is this important first century city. Uh, a Roman historian talks about this inscription. You know how we have like, you have your... Uh, your city sign your town sign as you're driving in and it's like welcome to simpsonville a wonderful place to live i don't know if it says that but this is imagine this inscription this is what tarsus inscriptions say tarsus the first and greatest and most beautiful metropolis how's that how's that for a city sign as you drive in but paul says i was not just a jew i'm not just a jew i was brought up here in Jerusalem. And not only that, I was educated in the strict manner by Gamaliel, yes, the Gamaliel of the law, in the law of our fathers. Now Gamaliel is like the most prominent um, scholar, Jewish scholar of that time. It would be the equivalent in the Reformation of us saying, you know what, I was educated under Martin Luther. John Calvin, yeah, he and I, he, he was my teacher. Or, you know, if you want to go earlier than that, I was taught by Augustine. You might have heard of him. What Paul is doing here is showing his pedigree. He's showing his roots. That I am the most orthodox and understanding of all of these Jewish laws and rituals in this city. I know more than you do. You see, he says, I was zealous. I was zealous for God, just as you claim to me. But even more. Or look at verse 4. I was so zealous that I persecuted the way. The way is the Christians. I persecuted them to death. I persecuted them to the death, binding and delivering men, and guess what? Women too. Yep, that was me. It goes on in verse 5 that he was so well known, so devout, so zealous that even the high priest, the whole council, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the, all the seas, all the high sects of Jerusalem and Judaism, they knew me and they gave me permission. And they encouraged and celebrated in my killing of Christians. I had access, access to the upper echelon of Jewish society. I was bona fide. I was born and raised and educated and worked in the top tier of top tier firms. That's who I was. 
That's how I guarded the temple, the law, the Jewish faith. All those things you accused me of defiling, no, I guarded them better than anybody. Nobody was better at serving Yahweh than me. And then when I receive from the council a call to go and persecute Christians to Damascus, everything changes. Because Paul says, I, a zealous Pharisee, met who? By divine intervention. No, he says it comes from heaven. It's a divine intervention. I met Yahweh. The one we worship. The one we sacrifice and pray and sing praises to. He says, I encountered Him. He blinded me by the glories of Himself. He spoke to me and I said, Who are you, Lord? You know, as Paul includes that even the men who were with him heard something. They were blinded. They, were, they, 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 they experienced something of this event. And Paul says, I was blinded by the glorious light from heaven. And you know what I heard? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus of Nazareth who you are persecuting. Do you get this? Paul is saying that he was a zealous to the point of murder Jewish leader. And at that moment, I became a man who could do, no, who could do nothing other than listen, follow, obey Jesus, Yahweh. He could do nothing else than what God told him in verse 10. Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Now that, that, that section there doesn't seem like much, that verse 10, that phrase, all that is appointed for you to do, it, it's, it's actually written in a very specific way. It's written in the perfect tense. And here it means this, that this phrase, all that is appointed for you to do, since it is in the perfect tense, it means this, those things have already been appointed for you to do. Paul, you are part of a divine plan. Scholar David Peterson says it like this, the perfect tense shows that the task has already been decided and only now needs to be revealed to Paul. All right, so what do you do with this? Well, first, we see that Paul's defense of the gospel and of his faith, his defense is to tell of his experience. Not only with Yahweh, but with the risen Jesus. He cannot be told that that is not real. And so if you're ever wondering, how do I have a defense? How do I have an apologetic for my faith? How do I share the gospel with someone who might think it is foolishness? Well, tell them how knowing Jesus has changed your life. Tell them what the Holy Spirit has done, because that is not something that is up for debate. Tell them about your encounter with the risen Lord and how it has changed your life. We also see here the need uh, to see that God has appointed us for his kingdom's sake as well. If we believe God is sovereign, and we do, if we believe God is in control of all things, that we are here to glorify him, it makes us realize this, that God has appointed not just Paul, but you and me as well to serve his kingdom. That God brings people into his kingdom at certain times and in certain circumstances that sometimes don't make sense to us in the present, but looking back couldn't have been better. Just consider Paul, how he was on, a way, on his way to kill Christians, and God chooses that time to bring him into his kingdom. Why? Because he had the credentials at that point. He was bona fide. He had the knowledge, he had the devotion, and now he has the Spirit. That's an amazing combination. We also see here in Paul's encounter that Jesus identifies with his church. 
he did it then and he does it now. I think it's one of the most encouraging points of Paul's conversion because it shows us that even then, God was with them. And even now, God is with us. He is with us, the church, in the struggles and pains of being believers. That he identifies with you and me, even in the midst of horrible turmoil and pain. It's in the back of your bulletin as an announcement, but November 7th, that's an international prayer for the persecuted church. One thing we can pray and know for certain is this. Jesus is with them. Never leaving, never forsaking. He is with them. He's with us. When you're going through really difficult times, when the church goes through difficult times, do you believe that? He's with us. He's with you. Let's close this morning by looking at, how Paul, at who Paul became. We see that through the rest of Paul's defense in verses 12 through 29. First thing we see in verse 12 is that Paul finds Ananias. Now, if you remember Ananias from like Acts chapter 9, Ananias was a Christian who was told by God to go to the place and find Saul of Tarsus. And do you remember Ananias' response? This is what he says in Acts 9. He says this, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's Acts 9. Now come back to Acts 22. How does Paul describe Ananias in verse 12? Did he tell him about this, this great Christian guy he found? No, he calls him a devout man according to the law. Well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't introduce Ananias as this Christian. You ever wonder why? Well, people of that area, they probably know who Ananias of Damascus was. And what Paul wants to make certain was that he is a credible source. Paul is saying, this man, he is credible. He is devout. He is respected by all in the city, even the Jews. He can tell you about my encounter with them. Go ask them. My encounter with Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom I've been killing by destroying those who called about, upon his name, go ask him about that. He'll tell you what really happened. In fact, he is the one who restored my sight and revealed to me what God has appointed me to do next. And what is that? Verses 14 through 16. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. This is Ananias telling Paul. To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. You know, it's probably at this moment that the crowd really starts to get pretty angry uh, at Paul's defense. Because what is implied in these verses? A whole lot. First, that the followers of Jesus, the way, they have the very same, they're implied there is they have the very same fathers of the faith that these Jews do. The fathers of the faith refer to who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And their God was who? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob worshipped Yahweh. Paul is saying Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who made covenant with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, not only 
not only did he encounter me and blinded me by his glory, but he has appointed me to know his will by seeing and hearing from the righteous one. The great and promised Messiah, that is Jesus. Do you remember him, that Jesus? You hung him on a cross of wood, you gave him the death of a thief. Paul is linking Jesus now to Yahweh as God incarnate. That Jesus is the righteous one. He is the Messiah. He was the Redeemer you have been waiting for. And I cannot not say anything, for God has appointed me to be a witness, to give testimony for Him. That would be a pretty big reason the Jews would be so upset with Paul. He has linked the Gentiles back to the fathers of their faith, to Yahweh. And now he's saying Jesus is also connected there. We're all part of it together. There's more. Look at verse 16. Ananias saying this, what are you waiting for? Go rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins. Baptized and wash away your sins. Well, Paul, Paul is saying when he encountered the risen Jesus and he met with Ananias, he was converted. He was converted to the way and finally he's saying, I understood what the scriptures that Gamaliel had instructed me in for so long, I finally understood what they meant. That the Redeemer alone could fully atone for for sin, and that Redeemer is Jesus the Christ. And so because Paul recognized and believed that redemption and forgiveness from sins was found in Christ alone, he was baptized by Ananias. Baptism. Baptism. That thing that Paul insisted people receive throughout his ministry in the Gentiles. I want you to be baptized. I don't want you to be circumcised, Gentiles. You think uh, that might have angered some of the Jews at the temple? That might have been proof that he had been forsaking the ways of Moses? What about the part, wash away your sins? How might that have angered those present? They might be saying, you can't do that. Only the high priest can cleanse us, wash us in the sprinkling of blood. And even then, it's only temporary. It's just a figure of, of pointing to something even better that's to come. Are you saying that Jesus is the real cleansing power the Old Testament points to? Paul would say yes. It's even more enraging for them. When we look ahead at verses 17 through 21, we see Paul recapping the danger he had when he went back to Jerusalem because of this link between Jesus and the Old Testament, that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised deliverer that was promised in Genesis 3 and it was recounted over and over and over again through these covenants. And because of that danger, what does is, what is he experience but God telling him through an act that is reserved for only prophets, that is, you're told by God in the temple something, That's something only prophets experience. You know the Isaiah 6 passage we read earlier? That was the same instant. That's the same kind of thing. Now Paul says he's experiencing it. But he's experiencing it for what? To leave Jerusalem, for they will kill you. So go be a witness to who? Gentiles? That's like the final nail in the coffin, as it were, for the Jews hearing this defense, this sermon. That would be the last straw. That would bring them to a rage. And it would confirm in their minds that Paul was out 
to disgrace, to defile the temple and the people and the law. You might wonder, where is that? Where does it say that he's out to do these things? Well, go back to the section, verses 14 through 16, for just a second, because Paul is making a statement. Paul is making a statement uh, that is pretty profound, and it would probably anger a lot of Jews at the temple. His statement is this. The way, Christianity... It's the true version of Judaism. Paul is saying, I have not become an apostate or a defector as he was accused earlier in chapter 21. No, he's saying Christianity, Jesus, that's the fully realized understanding of the Old Testament. That Jesus is the one whom God promised would come after Adam and Eve ate the apple, eat the forbidden fruit. As God said, I'm going to bring about a redeemer who will crush the serpent's head. I'm going to bring about a deliverer who will destroy the enmity that is between God and man. That will, that will bring back the chasm between God and man. Do you see this statement? He even, it's even seen in Paul's opening. Fathers and brothers, there's good news of Jesus, that he is real, and that he is what you have been waiting for. Fathers and brothers, we come from a long lineage of believers in Yahweh, and the one Yahweh promised has come, and he is Jesus, and I have met him. I, yes I, the zealous Paul, have met the risen righteous one. He is the line of Judah, that he is from David's lineage. He comes from Ruth. He is the promised one. Are you, are you ready for the next part? You ready for the next part, Jews, he says? And he's for the Gentiles, too. That they will share in our heritage. That our fathers of the faith, our Yahweh, is their fathers of the faith, and their Yahweh. Our Savior is their Savior. All our sins must be washed away by His blood, by His perfect and spotless righteousness. And He's going to wash away theirs, too. This speech is like Paul pulling the, the pen from the grenade and tossing it in and saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything you've been wanting, everything you've been waiting for. And his kingdom is far beyond what you could ever imagine. So we consider application as we close. I want us to focus on two things, change and courage. First, let's consider change. Consider the change in Paul's life from who he was to what he is now. He goes from a Jew murdering Christians to being attacked and beaten by Jews for becoming a Christian. How on earth does such a transformation take place? There's no ulterior, ulterior motive for Paul to suddenly become a Christian. His life was set when you think about it. He's going to live a life of prestige and honor if he stays a Pharisee. Instead, he's changed by encountering the risen Christ and he lives as a tent-making preacher the rest of his days. What would cause such a change, such a marked difference? Why would someone give all of that up? The change must be because the encounter with Jesus was so powerful and so real and so true that he could not act in any other way. And the same thing is true for us. That when we encounter Jesus, when we encounter the gospel and the Holy Spirit, we realize that is true for us as well. That we are saved, not by anything we do, but solely by His blood poured out for us. Y'all, that changes us. It can create a completely different 
person. Its transformation knows no bounds. And so it leads to this question, have you been changed? Are you changed? Are you different because of knowing Jesus? You know, because lots of people encountered Jesus in his ministry on earth, and some were healed, some were fed, some witnessed miracles, and yet they did not believe in the end. They weren't truly transformed. How have you been transformed by knowing Jesus? Second, courage. It takes courage to stand up on a ledge and speak again to a group of people who have already beaten you and called for your your death. It takes courage to speak again about how Jesus has changed your life, about how Jesus is the Messiah, about how God has promised his people Jesus from the very beginning and then be willing to be beaten and killed again for holding such a belief. It takes courage to tell people, uh, a group of people, what you hold to be true and have them think you're a traitor. Why would Paul risk this? He tells us in Romans chapter 1, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The cost of proclaiming the gospel and winning Jews and Gentiles, Romans and Greek for Christ, was worth it. And he wasn't ashamed of it. And sometimes I wonder, am I ashamed? Are we ashamed? Do we live with our own identity in Christ veiled because of shame or fear? probably and so we need help to proclaim the words of paul and meet it and mean it where do we get that power where do we get that unction to do these things it was the same place the same place paul got it is the same place we get it it's the holy spirit the spirit of god of jesus is poured out on all who believe what makes what i'm about to say just incredible do you believe We have the same Holy Spirit that Paul had that day in Acts 22 where he proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. Do you believe that that Spirit is alive in you today? Do you trust that? Do you believe and lean on that? Such an uproar is created by this. Claudius has no option to order Paul to be brought back into the military barracks. Literally, it says they were... It's like their their own version of mudslinging. They're literally throwing dirt at him. And so confused is Claudius about all of this that he uses the normal way of interrogation uh, to get information, uh, flogging. And you can imagine Claudius standing there with Paul being strapped into a torture position and saying, you know, Paul, we have ways of making you talk. Who are you really? And as Paul is about to be beaten, this time brutally by Romans, he says in verse 25, is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen, an an uncondemned Roman citizen? And the answer to that question is no. It's not lawful. In fact, that would be the end of Claudius' job as a Roman tribunal. So the centurion pulls back, he goes and tells Claudius about what's happening, and because Roman citizens, they have rights. And one of those rights was an appeal to not be interrogated in such a way. So when Claudius hears this, what does he do? He comes and he asks Paul if this is true. And he says this, I had to pay a great deal for my citizenship. 
often you become a citizen by bribing administrative officials. And this was no small sum of money. It was very expensive. And even then, it would be considered like a second-class citizenship because you weren't really a Roman. But Paul was. Well, Claudius paid a considerable cost for his citizenship, Paul says, I was born a citizen, which, funny enough, one historian points out, means Paul outranks the commander in terms of importance to Rome. So what do we end with? Paul, this beaten, bloodied, rabble-rousing man, a Roman citizen with Roman rights. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this, Paul? Because God has called him there. He has filled him with the spirit of the living and risen and righteous one to proclaim who he is because of him. Because of the mission being fulfilled with him. Do you believe that God can use your past and even now to serve him in the present and the future? That God can take all of your past, good and bad, and he is weaving it in to his mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you overwhelmed by the fact that you take people like us, people like Paul, and you transform them simply by encountering you for your glory and for your mission. Lord, we pray for clarity to be able to proclaim to others what we are not. We pray for ability to look down our past and see who we were and that we can give praise to you for how you have transformed us. Lord, help us not to be ashamed. Help us to trust that you are at work in us so that we might spread your kingdom as we are on your mission for your glory's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close this morning by singing a song, Christ will be